Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with my co-host and creator of the show, Tom Jokic. Christopher, since we started this show, yes. we have interviewed Mick Jagger. It was an interview that I did from late 2001 with Mick Jagger on the phone. We also ran a Keith Richards interview, which was extraordinary in that time as well. We had a lot of fun with that. This is the Rolling Stones together. So we get a bit of Mick, a bit of Keith, I think a bit of Bill Wyman as well. And these clips are an awful lot of fun, aren't they? They're terrific. But I have to say, <laughs> listeners, Tom wanted to both challenge, amuse, and exhaust me. <laughs> I sent you a lot he of He sent clips. me 31 clips of <laughs> Rolling Stones interviews a few weeks ago. Don't worry. We're not going to play them all, I promise. We're just going to play the good ones, and thank you for your patience. Sometimes I'm overwhelmed by them. I said, oh, hell with it. I'm just sending them to Christopher. Send it award, see what he does, yeah. Tom, what else have we got this week? Well, Christopher, in light of the recent passing of Cars leader Rick Ocasek, we have a really great interview with him from 1979, a year after the release of their incredible debut album and just before the release of their second album, Candio. This is really good stuff. I also have some cool songs facts about Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones. And speaking of them, let's start it up. This is like listening to a triple album with a gatefold sleeve. Oh, you, you know? mean with the, all the clips? Yes. Funny. <laughs> Funny. You're How right. many triple albums can you recall? I can only recall two, and that's All Things Must Pass right. by George Harrison and Sandinista by The Clash. Those are the only two that I can recall. I'm, maybe somebody will help us out here. Well, For Adam, sure. I'm sure, will tell us because I'm, I'm guessing that every... Grateful Dead live album ever released. Or any jam band that he <laughs> yeah. likes, and he loves jam bands, they all have triple albums. Surely to God they do. <laughs> so with the Stones, what you'll hear is a band in transition in interviews that span mm, two or three years. They were on the way down from a creative and commercial peak with Some Girls, which was six times platinum in 1978. 1980's Emotional Rescue, which followed, featured the title track as the first single, and it was a Stone's oddity to be sure, as Mick explains in uh, upcoming segment number 54,375. <laughs> anyway, everyone except for Charlie Watts is represented in this rock and roll potpourri, uh, some sounding more lucid than others. Oh, no kidding. But the sheer range of subject matter is quite phenomenal. I guess that's to be expected from guys who've been interviewed for a couple of decades. Uh, the opening act is Bill Wyman, who I've interviewed, and as I found, Bill is open, sincere, and very detailed in his answers. He starts by talking about how the songs evolve. When people write songs, um, there's certain ways people think of them being performed, and uh, in things like Satisfaction and um, Midnight Rambler, things like that. It, it goes completely different to the way the demo is or the rough cassette is, you know. It goes somewhere else and it's great. Sometimes uh, when you're recording and um, things don't seem to flow the right way to the way that Keith either or Mick, whoever wrote the song, or between them, uh, can feel it and say, well, we don't think the drums should play like that, Charlie. We think they should go like this, you know, and then Charlie will try to do it and he'll probably do it okay. Mm -hmm. um, and... and that bass, the, the, the bass line that you're doing right there doesn't seem to be the way we were, were thinking of it at the time. So I, I usually say, I mean, it's a bit more easy going than Charlie because nobody else can play drums. <laughs> and I say, well, why don't you why don't you try the bass and see what happens? So Keith's done that on occasion, mm -hmm. as is Mick Taylor. And uh, I've usually moved over and done some sort of uh, keyboard or some synthesizer or something like that. 
just the way we work. He also takes on the age-old question of why the stones endure. How can we stay together because it still seems to work? Everybody's still having a good time, everybody's still buying tickets and buying records, so um, there we are. In other words, the magic is still there, right, Bill? Yeah, all the way around. Yeah. The public, we've got young kids still starting to follow the band, and they say, oh, I've been listening to your records, you know, we've bought everything since uh, Go Ahead Soup, and we think, well, that was 1962, you know. <laughs> Well, yeah, they're still having a good time, and they still rock on to to that point, and all these years later, because they can, and because people want to see them. Tom, I'm assuming that uh, you would identify with some of Bill's special interests, because he's the ultimate archivist in that band. That's right. Man, I mean, he has just so much material. Some of it in, that came out in that book, Rolling with the Stones, but he literally collected every hotel receipt. He got cassette copies of every interview they did, every ticket stub. It was amazing. Yeah. He's a detail man, and if you wondered how he felt looking back, he gives the answer. Surprisingly, he's got some very good things to say about the new crop of early 80s bands. Well, I, I see one band in particular in Europe that's, that's going down a storm, you know. Uh, 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 they are based in England, although they're American. Uh, they couldn't make it in America. Well, they moved over to England and they become enormous. Uh, and they're doing a very similar thing to what we were doing at the very beginning, and that is taking a music of 10, 15 years, or 20 years be- beforehand, rehashing it, uh, they've got an image together, and they're really happening over there. And that's a band called Stray Cats. Who are playing hillbilly rock, like um, Eddie Cochran, Gene Vincent style. You know, uh, they are enormous in Europe now. I mean, they're number one albums in the singles in France and Finland and England and Holland and Germany, and they're off to Japan. I think next month. They're great. There's another band, Duran Duran, are great. I love them. Um, there's a lot of bands. I mean, apart from the, the, the obvious, the Police and the Clash and bands like that, they're great. There's lots and lots of brilliant, really good talent coming out of England right now. I mean, an awful lot. And it's very, very exciting. Because at last, they're getting the image together with the music. And, you know, when punk sort of, to give it a name, when punk sort of came out, there was a great image there, but the music really wasn't happening, as far as I was concerned, apart from a few bands. And now, the whole thing is beginning to gel, and there's a lot of good stuff coming along. I always laugh a little bit, though, when bands of that ilk 
start complimenting other bands who are complete and utter throwbacks, right? Like, right. I really like, like, I like the Stray Cats, but the Stray Cats were a rockabilly band, and they stood out in the early 80s with Rock This Town and Stray Cats Strut and I Won't Stand In Your Way. Great songs, great songs, and they belonged on the charts then, but... To hold them up as the paragon of good new rock and roll is silly to me. But anyway, it may, still makes me laugh. When they yeah, it's not up. an observation that ages particularly no. well. No. Anyway, Mick mm. takes up the interview subject duties as he deconstructs the single Emotional Rescue. Well, it's a bit of a strange track, really. It started off with um, just um, Ronnie and uh, playing bass and Charlie and myself playing the piano. That's how it was, you know. And then we put um, keys on and we put the saxophone on actually we put the sax straight away after we cut the just the rhythm track so it was it's not actually the band playing sort of five together yeah as most of the other tracks are I don't know yeah it's just another groove really I'd, I'd never think about them like that I just take them all as they come out of my head so to speak you know so I just wrote it on the piano and that's how it was more or less Mick takes some ribbing about his vocal on the single but you know Mick <laughs> did sing in that high voice nobody knows why <laughs> but towards, you told me to oh that's right but towards the end of the song he does go you will be mine you will be mine all mine and uh, that gives the complete range of mixed voice what up and down you mean <laughs> top it's, c to middle b he'll flatten it himself <laughs> oh, it's been uh, used a lot in rolling stone records and that high voice yeah he did uh, daddy you're a fool to, to cry, cry. Wow, they like making fun of Mick on that song. <laughs> and why not? Like, Miss You was kind of a cool disco song. I think Emotional Rescue is kind of a ridiculous disco song. But You will be mine. You will be mine. Oh, mine. Now, that being said, I just want to say to my girlfriend, I know it's your favorite Rolling Stones song of all time. And while I am quietly embarrassed by that fact, I will give it to you because you love it so much. <laughs> you know what? You want to bring her in for a little bit of a song she hate to love? Sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Mick, of course, would rather do it his way. I really wish there was someone there to do a lot of this because there's a lot of donkey work making records. You know, when you hear about bands like the Fleetwood Mac making, spending two years, right? A lot of it's donkey work because what you do is it's a really stupid way of making records. They're going in with ten songs saying these are the ten songs we all know in life. You know, they're all rehearsed. Great, fantastic. Here they come, and these are the songs. The game then records thirty. You know. Start making a movie and so then he start, Oh, I wish we could use that one and Ronnie's going, What about that one? I know I say, nah, forget it, right? <laughs> or oh, whatever, right? And so you whittle it down from thirty down to ten and it's a very slow process. I prefer just to go in with the first ten songs that I write, you know. <laughs> and and a razor blade. So it takes quite a long time to to, to whittle and it. And there's guitar time. lessons for Mick, you know, they take weeks and weeks. <laughs> Christopher we continue our conversation with the Rolling Stones from the early 80s. Where are we now? We're about 1983? We're lost in the past somewhere. <laughs> uh, and we're probably never going to find our way out. Right, okay. But, you know, that's okay. Sure. It's kind of what we do. 1982 also saw the release of Still Life, a live album. Keith comments. It sounds pretty good to me, and I don't generally write live albums. Yeah. But I've stuck with this one, so it's a good sign. You know, Keith is always funny in these interviews when he's trying to promote an album because you can tell that he doesn't really love some of the stuff they uh, release. There's a song, 
Ah, uh, they're not the only one with mixed emotions. You know that song, remember Mixed oh, yeah, Emotions, sure. right? Yeah. It was either that one or um, Anybody Seen My Baby. And someone asked, so what do you think of the song? And he goes, oh, kind of a lovely pop song, isn't it? And it's like, it sounds so dismissive because, you know, in his heart, that's not the kind of music he really wants to be playing. But they needed to create songs for radio airplay. And at that point, with Mixed Emotions and Anybody Seen My Baby, those songs didn't really fly up the charts. And you know that Keith would probably have wanted to play other music, but he's still trying to promote it. Well, I actually think both of those songs are pretty good examples of strong later period yeah. Stones material. Yeah. But to me, what that means is that Keith didn't write them. Right, exactly <laughs> right. Now, you know the story about anybody seen my baby. Um, Mick is playing it at home and his daughter is going, oh, that's Constant Craving. And oh, he goes, "Oh yeah, what? Yeah, Constant yeah. Craving. So she plays Constant Craving Katie for him. Lang song, yeah. They call up Katie Lang and say, uh, you're getting a songwriting credit on a Rolling Stones song. Are you fine with that? And she goes, oh yeah. Anybody <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> perhaps surprisingly, Mick doesn't mind recalling the band's origins. We have had ups and downs, of course, but I mean, yeah, we've had, you know, we had initial success in the UK, definitely. You know, we were a new band, we put a record out, our first record winning the top 40, our next record winning the top 10. And so I suppose in that way, we were instantly successful. And from then on, we've always had hits of some kind and success on the road. Why that is, I don't know. You put it down to anything, luck hard work, not giving up when things look bleak. The Undercover album, which came out in 1983, revealed a power struggle that would last through the decade by the band's two main songwriters. Mick, on the one hand, was keenly aware of current trends in music and wanted the Stones to embody some of those influences. Keith wanted them to return to their blues roots. Right. Mick talks about writing the songs for Undercover. Keith and I got together on it at the end of 1982, actually. We started writing songs. And in 1993, we started recording it. First of all, Keith and I went to a little, we rented a basement studio in Paris. And we sort of polished off that. We said, oh, well, this is the songs I've written. And he said, this is the songs I've written. And we got up, like, six to ten songs, I can't remember. Usually, Keith and I have a hand in it. So I would come and say, well, look, I've got this song, but I'm stuck here, I need a bit more. And Keith would say, well, yeah, I've got 80 two lines of can you fill in the rest of the lyrics and stuff like that so it's very difficult to say I wrote this and you wrote that and it's like going to dinner with four people and saying your girlfriend had the soup and, <laughs> and then therefore I shouldn't pay the equal or you know like that it's stupid so we just divide them but you know we each person helps the other and the band also changes them so much the rhythms and things like that around. I often have to rewrite them completely once the band gets hold of them. Because they they go from being love balanced to sort of dance songs and I have to just say forget it. I mean I'm gonna rewrite it, you know. There you go. That's just like the Beatles, you know, they would come in with their own songs and then they would be stuck at some point and then they would fix each other's songs. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. It's a great process to have the imagination of somebody else who brings things that you think I would have never done that but it's better. So let's talk a little bit about songwriting here. You're a songwriter, Christopher. Do you collaborate a lot on songwriting? Mm -hmm, I do. Okay, so there's also a little bit for me, 
if I was a songwriter and I kind of know what I'm like creatively, I kind of don't want that other input because it's I think it's my ego. You have to really set your ego aside and work for the greater good of the song. Is that an easy or hard thing to do? Well, I love it yeah. um, because it makes it exciting because you get bored by yourself after a while. And I mean, there are songwriters who will say, no, you can't touch it. This is, this is my creation and it is sacred. Right. And I don't want anybody messing with it. And that's fine. But you're not going to be doing a lot of collaborating if that's your point of view. Sure. I think you have to go into it with an idea of whatever happens, happens. And then if for some reason you take it to somebody and you hate what they've done with it, you might be able to say, well, you know, this isn't working for me. Can I take the song back to where it was? Yeah. And hopefully you've only wasted an afternoon. Sure, sure. And uh, when you worked with Diana Ross, did she have a lot of input into the songs or did you pitch her the songs? Well, as we've said before, and as I've heard from so many artists, there's no one way to write songs. And this one was a little bit unusual. I would have a meeting with her and I'd bring my notebook and she would talk and then we would converse. But she had definitely something she wanted to write about and all kinds of ideas. And then it was really my, my, my goal to translate that stuff into a song form. And then I worked with a collaborator as well on the musical side. And so one of those songs that you wrote was a song that she wanted to do about Michael Jackson. We yeah. played it previously on the show. And that must have been weird because she gave you a prescription or a description of what she wanted you to do. And you changed it up a little bit, but she still loved it. I changed it up a lot. <laughs> Tom, it had to be done. <laughs> right, right. <Excellent. laughs> As you can imagine. For sure. So back to the Stones oh, on Famous come Floss on, Christopher. Yeah. <laughs> Keith has a theory about the source of inspiration. Songs, they're all around you. A good songwriter isn't somebody that creates something. It's somebody that's receptive to like an antenna you know, on a TV. As long as he's switched on and they've got an antenna on the roof... Well, the songs, they're there, you know. I mean, all you do is just, they come through you. I'm not like a medium, in a way, in that respect, you know. Have you seen the documentary um, Under the Influence, the Keith Richards one from a few years ago? No. I think, I saw, I think it was on Netflix in 2015. Sure. It's fantastic. There's mm -hmm. lots of jamming and live stuff going on. You see him working through songs. But he also theorizes about about songwriting and he's remarkably consistent he sort of expands on the theory in the in the film but basically it's the same approach mick explains the meaning of the song undercover what's it about it's really there being this enormous amount of political terrorism in the world and yet of course like people like me and you and people listening down there we can just gloss over it ignore it hide, hide like an ostrich cuddle up with our old ladies and forget about it while it's still outside it's going on that's really what the song's about. Every week on Famous Lost Words, we unearth classic music interviews and play the best parts for you. This week, we are hearing an epic series of interview clips from the Rolling Stones. Christopher, what's up next? Mick talks about some strange crowd control problems from the early years. In the very early 60s, it wasn't peace and all that, but that didn't happen until later, like uh, 66 or 67. That was a part of the sort of war people, you know, that bit. Uh, before that, it was like very violent for a while because people didn't know how to control like the kids, you know. You know what I mean? Like uh, in crowds, they just didn't know. And when we came, like say to Memphis when we first played there, I don't know which year, maybe '65, I think. Well, there was just little girls, right? 
that would run to the front with their instrumentics and snap off bulbs and things, and they would throw things on the stage at little gifts and that. And they'd scream all the way through, and we wouldn't have to play hardly. Okay. But what happened was that they didn't like, know how to control them, so police used to hit them over the head with their nightsticks. These little children, you know, like their own children. That lasted for a while, but it was quite horrible for a long while because it was just the all these communities didn't know how to control control these little girls just by just being nice to them. Yeah, you know, that's around that era when security just didn't know how to deal with these no. young fans. And so they're beating up these little kids who are just trying to get closer to their band, but they had no experience. Mick talks about the necessity of keeping your identity while in a band. For me, it's hard to imagine that could be a problem for Mick Jagger. The band is very important in my life, but of course, I've always felt that I was important you know, as an individual, I didn't want to completely put myself into the group. I mean, I am in the group, but I mean, that's not going to conceal my identity as a person. I think anyone should do that. You have to do it a bit in the beginning. After a while, I mean, you've got to exert your own personality. I'm supposedly the one that's sort of polite and nice and everything and doesn't know anything about music, and Keith is the one that's nasty and knows everything about music, where, of course, it's not true. When we started playing... You know, it's quite possible to say, oh, rock and roll was just another cha-cha-cha or hula hoop, you know. I mean, rock and roll is part of life, you know, the kind of music that we play, you know, and you kind of grow up with it, I guess, you know, and so does everybody else with it, you know. The thing is not to do it too fast. Great stuff. The Rolling Stones on famous lost <laughs> words. We made it through. Yeah, it, the word epic applies here. For sure. Okay, Christopher, so let's continue our conversation about the Rolling Stones. We played some clips from the past, but you saw them in the present. Tom, I went to see the Stones at the Rose Bowl with my 23-year-old daughter. Now, seeing the band, the world's greatest rock and roll band, and they weren't billed that way, I have to say, was like seeing it through her eyes was half the fun, right? Yeah. She'd grown up with the music, of course, and loved the songs, and she knew the band's iconic status, but she had no idea of what the show would be like. Now, for me, a guy who's seen the Stones multiple times over the years in different venues from the Olympia in Paris to the Rose Bowl 25 years ago, it was like the expectation of a nostalgic experience. Now, Mick's recent heart surgery was kind of a shadow over the event beforehand, as you can imagine, but was quickly dispelled. He led a virtual aerobics class for the over two hours he was front and center. I'm serious with all those jumping jack things that he does, (laughs) along with all the other stuff, right? And he doesn't even seem to have lost a step vocally, unlike most of his contemporaries. Okay, his wardrobe still looks like it was lifted from a Beverly Hills thrift shop in 1975, but so what, right? My daughter laughed in delight at the sight of Mick's comedic dance moves. I mean, this is sort of a buffoonish quality. Yes. Only Mick pulls it off. Yeah. Keith ditched the bandana and the weird little hair tie things, okay. mercifully, yeah. <laughs> and devoted himself to great playing better than the last time I saw them, which was, I think, 2013. So, Tom, in, in to summarize, forgive the hyperbole, but there was something miraculous at seeing this show. One I probably would have bet against even happening a couple of years ago. These guys love what they do, And the joyful audience reaction is earned every single night with some of the greatest rock and roll songs ever written and the commitment they make to giving us all they've got. That's great. Whether or not it's for the last time. Wow. 
So it's interesting what you say about Mick's kind of almost comic and almost buffoonish uh, stage presence because it is yeah. funny because yeah. he kind of prances around the stage in um in almost like a mock imitation of Mick Jagger. You know, it's <laughs> <laughs> he's got the moves like Jagger, yes, does he? <laughs> he certainly does. And if you were to isolate, if you were just That's to funny. show someone without any music playing that, they would go, well, what is th- what exactly does that guy think he's doing? <laughs> exactly. Right? Is he dancing? Is he just moving? It's very music? camp. It is. It's very camp, but it is It is him. And, you know, you want the full-on, uh, the full frontal Jagger, as, a, as, I, as I would call it, uh, in that experience. <laughs> and uh, it's great to know. It was fantastic. When you watch Keith Richards up there, when I've seen, yeah. I've only seen them once, and when I saw him, it was just like, Keith, man, you... You live to do this. You live for this moment. And do you yeah. still feel that yeah. he's completely engaged in what he's doing? He, it's, that's an interesting question because I, he was actually more, uh, I don't want to say receding or in the background or anything. I mean, it's still Keith's show as much as it's mix in a way. Yeah. But he he wasn't as sort of on the edge as he was in previous shows that I'd seen him. But he played better. I mean, he he makes sloppiness an art form. So let's <laughs> let's let's just say that at the outset. Exactly. And the interplay between him and Woody is the magic, right? I mean, when I interviewed Bill Wyman years ago, I mean, he just said, "Hey, we're not the best musicians. We're not the best players. Mick's not the best singer, but we got something." And that something was on full display. Uh, speaking of full display, now I need somebody to verify this to make <laughs> sure I wasn't the only one who saw it. I think Woody was wearing a T-shirt with the set list written on it. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. And and beside each song, the key oh, that it was in. God. I I I could be wrong. Please somebody That's so back funny. me up on this. That's so funny. Because who is he doing that for? Yeah. Yeah. There's no mirror on well, stage. He's not say, doing it for does himself. He, does in front of him, if it, does his monitor have his have a mirror image of him from the front, <laughs> so that he could uh, he could see what's coming next? That's very funny. You know. I love that. Okay, Christopher, this episode so far has been dedicated to the Rolling Stones. You saw the Stones in concert. We played some Stones yes. clips, and now. I've got some Mick Jagger and Rolling Stones cool song facts for you. These are based on a book called Mick Jagger by the author Philip Norman, who's uh, done a number of, of you know, well-known rock documentaries. Right. Okay? So, here we go. Let's get started. So, first of all, it was Brian Jones that came up with the name The Rolling Stones, but Mick and Keith both hated the name. They said it made them sound halfway between a classical string quartet and an Irish show band. (laughs) Wow. But Brian... I did not know that. But Brian got his way because at that point, it was still mostly his band. Hard to imagine. (laughs) I know. I know. Very hard to imagine. Okay. Speaking of Brian, we're going to Brian Epstein, the former manager of the Beatles. So after the death of Brian Epstein, there were plans for a giant Beatles and Stones merger. Get this. Where the two bands would share offices, build a recording studio that would be used by them both. And Mick got as far as registering the name Mother Earth for their record label. But the plan was put down by Alan Klein. Now, we know Alan Klein 
was the manager of the Rolling Stones for a while and was trying to get his claws, and I do mean that derisively, he was trying to get his claws into the Beatles, and he was the one who made that not happen. But that would have been very interesting. How would music history, how would the history of both of those bands been changed or or affected by almost a merger of the two greatest bands in the world under one umbrella. That would have been fascinating. But would it have changed anything creatively? I don't know. You know, it's funny because they were so affected by each other and there was a rivalry between the bands, but it was for the most part a friendly rivalry and an artistic rivalry. I think some of this started when the Stones were talked into recording a Beatles reject song. Well, right. And well they did I, I Wanna Be, be Your, Your Man. Man and that and and that became yeah. kind of their first legitimate hit. They really liked each other around that time and honestly they really liked each other throughout the whole throughout the whole thing. But the Beatles yeah, no were very influenced by the Stones and very influenced by the album Aftermath. Remember that? Yeah. And they even toyed this is so lame, okay? This is funny. They even toyed with the idea of calling Revolver after geography instead of after math. <laughs> that is a true story. You made that I up. I did not make that up. You made that I made, up. I, I read it in a book called uh, Dreaming the Beatles by Rob Sheffield, a writer for Rolling Stone. And it is so, it's such a stupid fact. Uh, he, he's a really he's, legit he's writer. He's a legit writer. Yeah. No, writer. he's great. And, but that's yeah. just, okay. I love that. Okay. <laughs> after geography. Okay. Okay, so, more Mick Jagger and Rolling Stones, cool song facts, cool people facts. Marianne Faithful was, of course, one of the most important women in Mick's life, especially in the 60s. And then, But in the late 60s, she was not in a good place, and she tried to take her own life. So she was in a coma. She heard voices calling her back into the land of the living, including Mick's. When she opens her eyes... Mick is there holding her hand, and he said, wow, you've come back. And she said, wild horses wouldn't drag me away. And that stuck with him and became the chorus for Wild Horses, the Great Stone song. Wow. Yeah. That's very touching. In just a few minutes, we'll hear a lost interview with the late Rick Okasik of the Cars. But first, let's continue with more cool song facts about Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones. A few minutes ago, we were talking about Marianne Faithful, who was Mick's partner in the 60s. Now, we're talking about Bianca Jagger, Mick's first wife. Bianca was not a fan of Carly Simon. Can you guess why, Christopher? Uh, because they resembled one another? (laughs) You know what? A lot of people said that Mick fell for her because Bianca looked like Mick. So he fell in love with himself. And when you look at Carly, (laughs) she has those same qualities that Mick does. That's very funny. Okay, so here's the story. So Bianca was not a fan of Carly, and she was not a fan of the song You're So Vain. She thought that the line, "You, you had me several years ago, was evidence of an affair that Carly had with Mick. She later said that of all the women in Mick's past, it was Carly Simon that caused her the worst insecurity. Well, (laughs) well, well, well. (laughs) Okay. By the time Mick released his album Primitive Cool in the late 80s, he and Keith were barely getting along with each other. Keith called Mick's touring band Disco Boy Jagger's Little Jerk-Off Band. (laughs) 
<laughs> and said wow. that and said that he would slit Mick's throat if he went on tour with those guys. I don't think there was much demand for that tour no, anyway. No, sadly. The, this is so sordid. It is, it is, and and that's what I love. And you're just you're loving oh this just God. a little too much. I, I think. revel in this stuff. Are you kidding? <laughs> so the eventual peace talks between Mick and Keith around that time happened at Eddie Grant's recording studio in Barbados. Remember him, uh, Electric Avenue? Of course, and, I do very well. So as Mick and Keith sat down with each other. They started kind of like it was tense. No one knew what was going to happen. And then they started kind of laughing at all of the drama. They even began reciting each other's slams against each other, the insults. They even started reciting them back to each other. And within a few minutes, they're just howling at how ridiculous it all got. And then that, that's when they got back together again. Love that. Okay. Salacious. You want salacious. <laughs> I've got salacious. Mick Jagger apparently had a two-year affair with Angelina Jolie. And I would like to point out once again that she kind of looks like Mick. Yeah, I knew you were going there. <laughs> she starred in the music video for Anybody Seen My Baby. And by all accounts, Mick really pursued her around that time. And it was Angelina's mom who pushed her to do the video because Angelina's mom also kind of had a thing for Mick. So this this is getting sorted. But anyway, what we hear about Mick and Angelina, even though I believe he was married at the time, was Angelina was the first and only of Mick's girlfriends to actually treat him with contempt and treat him quite poorly over the years, which is very unusual uh, for wow. Mick and his love life. So there you go. Cool song facts. Cool salacious Ugh. facts about Mick Jagger and the Rolling okay. Stones. I need a shower. <laughs> Cause she's my best friend's girl. She's my best friend's girl. Great song from the late 70s. Rick Okasik and the Cars with my best friend's girl. Christopher? What a sound they had. Huh? Oh, for Unlike sure. Unlike any other band. Yeah. Okay, it's former band names quiz time, but we already know the answer. ID Nirvana. Milkwood. ID? Wow. Okay. Richard and the Rabbits, and Captain Swing. <laughs> Every band had as membership Benjamin Orr and Rick Ocasek of the Cars. Oh. They did get around to their best-known name in 1976 and recorded their first album in London in 12 days with producer Roy Thomas Baker, um, best known for working with Queen, Journey, Foreigner, Motley Crue, etc. The album was six times platinum. They had an amazing string of hits from 78 to 88 and were helped considerably by the videos that accompanied those hits. In 1984, at the first MTV Video Awards, they won Video of the Year for You Might Think from that last album of that platinum string produced by... Mutt Lang. Oh. They did reunite in 2011 to make Move Like This, minus the late Ben Orr. Check out the single Blue Tip if you do listen to that record, by the way. Mm -hmm. They had 13 top 40 hits and sold over 23 million records. Their biggest hit, Drive, written by Okasik but sung by Benjamin Orr. And, bonus time, it was at the video shoot, directed by Timothy Hutton, that he met Paulina Portskova to whom he was married until 2018. She called him, quote, a combination of Mr. Spock, David Bowie, <laughs> Jesus Christ, and Chopin. <laughs> okay. Don't so, you want one woman in your life to call you that? Well, Just sure. Once? Sure. I'd take it from Paulina. Yes. Hey, she could call me Elmer Fudd and I'd show up. <laughs> when He was being interviewed on Much when I came to work one day. Yeah. And... Um, 
I went over to my desk and there was the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen sitting at my desk wearing like sweats and no makeup and everything else. And I said, oh, excuse me. She wanted to give me back my desk. I said, no, no, no. And I realized who it was. I said, oh, do you want to come on my show? She she took a pass saying that oh, she wasn't ready for that. Oh, so, so it was Paulina, huh? That's I took, amazing. I took my best shot, you know? Yeah, that's yeah. great. Now, Rick Ocasek also left quite a legacy as a producer. He worked with bands like Weezer, Bad Religion, No Doubt, and Hole. And I have one strange fact for you. Your song, My Best Friend's Girl, was played at the last live show by Nirvana. Oh. Yeah. Wow, okay. Yeah. This interview is at the time of the release of their second album, Candio. Rick starts by talking about the move from opener to headliner. Rick, without giving away the show, can you give me some idea roughly what the cars do on stage? We, we saw you in a small club nine months oh, yeah, ago, yeah, but yeah. now you're coming back in a big, in a yeah. big place. Uh, we do the same thing, only it's a bigger stage. Run around. Um, you know, we have our own lights this time, and uh, the colors are rather weird. What do the cars strive for in terms of presentation on the stage? Uh, we just let the audience feel what they want without prompting them to uh, feel things they don't. That's interesting. He says you don't want to prompt the audience, and it's almost a bit of a punk attitude there, right? It's not like clap along where you like, like the bass player puts his hands up and gets everyone to clap along. It's kind of like the antithesis of that at a car show. It's not the Rolling Stones or Journey. It's the cars, and you can hear a little bit of that attitude in what Rick is saying right there. It sounded kind of tongue-in-cheek it, to me. I, I don't know. Yeah. Hard to tell. Okay. Because he's very dry. Yeah. <laughs> Okasik talks about the production approach that they favored. Candio, you made this one in, uh, in the United States, with, yeah. again with Roy Thomas Baker. Right. Recorded it in Los Angeles. The production on it sounds a fair bit different from the first one. Not only is there a lot more energy in the, in the tracks, but there also seems to be a, uh, less of a Roy Thomas Baker feel about it. Yeah. Well... Uh, we didn't we didn't uh, approach harmonies the same way yeah. as we did on the first. We kept it more uh, more like the car's sound live. Uh, but I don't know. I think I think uh, the first album sounded like it's live as well. It's just uh, you know we didn't layer things quite as heavily. It's interesting. They recorded that second album with Roy Thomas Baker, but he didn't uh, do that whole layered vocals thing because that's not what the band wanted for that second album. And while that worked to a certain degree to pull back on the layered vocals, it isn't quite the classic that the first album is. That first album is simply one of the greatest debut albums by any band ever. And I think that part of it was the way those vocals uh, were layered on top of each other. And uh, just those tight songs and those great vocals, man, that was a classic album. Yeah, I mean, just what I needed. What I mean, what a great vocal sound that is. Yeah. Huh? Mm-hmm. He talks about sudden success. Not that you guys were an overnight success or anything, because nobody is. You really have to break it to get there. But um, at the same time, you were an overnight success. Your first album went zip, and your second one will obviously follow suit. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you cope with that kind of thing? You've got to all of a sudden organize a big organization around what essentially is a small bunch of guys. Yeah. It takes a while, you know, to uh, adjust to it because you're usually pretty used to failure or at least not being accepted as readily. And then all of a sudden you are. So, uh, you know, you don't know whether to take it seriously or not. Um, we we pretty much, I think, took it in stride. And, uh, you know, we didn't, we didn't sort of, uh, you know, 
uh, plan it. I mean, we didn't know, you know, what would happen. We would have been satisfied with with uh, less if it, if it would have been less. But uh, it's been it's been okay. You know, we've had to get a lot of things together in a short amount of time, and uh, we've been going crazy since it happened. Has it affected your personal lives to the stand to the point of of hurting some of them? Um, no, just as far as like time to do things. That's about it. Yeah, I bet he's not the first artist to say that it takes a while to adjust to sudden success, that's for sure. And that failure is useful. There you go. From more than 40 years ago, that's Rick Okasik of the Cars, who we lost very recently. Speaking of that, we also lost Eddie Money recently, and we have a very revealing early career interview coming up on an upcoming episode. Famous Lost Words is produced by Adam Karsh, executive producer Rob Farina, Special thanks to Tim Friedlander at Soundbox Studio in Los Angeles. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. Don't forget to get caught up with past episodes on the iHeartRadio app.